0: There's so many reasons that, especially young women, I think, count themselves out of having a political voice, and as soon as we see that everything we do is political and all of our networks and our communities are sites of potential change and evolution where we get to build the world that we want, then that political comes home and becomes personal
1: Are you ready to be the change you want to see in the world? Are you ready to make choices that have
2: a positive impact on your daily life, your community, and the planet? You are in the right place. I'm Anne-Therese Genere. And I'm Robin Shaw. And this is The Hate Change Podcast.
1: This episode is sponsored by Lux Botanics. Imagine a high-performance skincare line formulated with the most transformative botanicals, and manufactured ethically with respect for people, animals, and the planet. I used to dream about finding a skincare line that was this good, that was taking action on behalf of others. And then I discovered Lux Botanics. They use only the highest grade nutrient dense organic and wild harvested botanical oils, scientifically proven for their efficacy and transformative properties. Sourced through fair trade alliances which support local communities while safeguarding the environment. Every purchase gives back directly to the communities that harvest their incredible ingredients. For example, when you purchase a Marula product, which is harvested and cold-pressed in Kenya by Maasai women, a schoolchild in Kenya will receive books, uniforms, and shoes. So you can have the skin of your dreams while making your dreams of a better world a reality. Lux Botanics is offering Hey Change podcast listeners 15% off with code
2: HeyChange. That's 15% off with code HAYCHANGE. Cameron Russell is a model, writer, and organizer whose work leverages creative collaboration and collective storytelling to facilitate evolution. She spent the last 17 years working as a model for clients like Prada, Common Klein, Victoria's Secret, H&M, Vogue, and Elle. With over 37 million views and counting, she gave one of the top 10 most popular TED Talks of all time on the power of image. She's currently finishing work on a book about fashion, intuition, and power.
1: In 2016, Cameron Russell co-founded the Model Mafia with Anya Rose Campbell, and that is a self-organized group of models who are also activists. This growing community has hundreds of members, and we're working to create a more fair, equitable, and just fashion industry and world. And it's through that network that both Anne-Therese and I got to know Cameron. In this episode, you'll hear us talk about climate change, the huge challenge we face, and also what we can do about it, as well as the invisible forces that hold everything together. We had a lot of laughs, but we also learned a lot. And I think you too will be humbled by Cameron's gentleness in her power. Let's dive right in. (music) Cameron, it is such an honor to have you on the show. We've been so looking forward to this conversation. You've had an incredible modeling career. You have graced the covers of Vogue and Porter Magazine, just to name a few. You've walked for Victoria's Secret and so many more. How would you say your experience in the fashion industry has shaped who you are today? And what has that journey been like for you becoming a model activist? Do you think that growing up in the
0: fashion industry has shaped you? Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, there's so many different things that I attribute to working in fashion, things that I feel like I've learned from working inside this industry, but it because I started working when I was so young, I was 16. I think also lots of those things are just coming of age, you know? So maybe no matter what job I had done or no matter in which way I had grown up, I would have come to these things, but they feel particularly for me like I learned them because of fashion, um, because I've done it for so long and because um, I was young when I started. I feel like one thing that I learned was just, I don't have as much control as I think I do, or at least as I thought I did as like a 15 year old where I was kind of trying to strategize and plan out like, okay, if I go to this school and I do this internship and then I do this, and modeling just totally derailed that you know in so, so many really great ways, and in other ways that I just could not have foreseen because I had no idea that, that was even a job, much less one that I was going to end up doing so I think there's definitely a, a lesson in um not necessarily knowing what opportunities are going to be there or what we have access to or the water that we're going to be swimming in um, and I think the lesson around that in terms of activism has always been to work with the people who are next to you and never to feel like I'm not qualified enough or I'm not in the right community to do this. Or there are so many reasons that especially young women, I think count themselves out of uh, having a political voice. And as soon as we see that everything we do is political and all of our networks and our communities are sites of potential change and evolution where we get to build the world that we want, then that political comes home and becomes personal. I did not think that that was going to be in fashion for me because I didn't even know the fashion industry was a thing. <laughs> and then even you know, as I worked in fashion, I didn't always see it as a site of activism or the the sort of political activist work that I was doing outside fashion and some reasons I didn't see it that way I think have to do with like the patriarchy like just not even seeing myself or the women around me as powerful and important and valuable mm-hmm. I think there's a real narrative around models that we are disposable, we're young, we're in some cases spoiled, we are without skills. And I think that's just a way of diminishing women in general, just a different very specific version of that. So I think it actually took me, uh, unfortunately, a while to see how leaderful the community that I was in already was. And then you know, making activism personal and making the political personal, I think requires just a level of um, self-reflection that, you know, I just had to learn how to do. I don't I don't think it was a thing that I was particularly raised to do or was in, um, I guess, in like education and society. So, you know, as like a teenager, like so many folks in my generation, I think going to... Planned Parenthood, you know, um, reproductive justice marches and rallies and BLM and dreamers. And ha- there's all these movements that were big opportunities to turn out as a protester or as a um, I feel like that was kind of an introduction to activism where it felt like this is a different world than mm-hmm. fashion. And so it took me a minute to figure out how do I bring that work into the world that i'm in in fashion what does that mean for me personally that makes sense but That was a super convoluted <laughs> answer if you need me to give it again i can
2: <laughs> no it's great i think it's just it's so interesting what comes to me is like you know it's every time you reflect back on any journey in your life journey it's like wow there's actually so many things that's happened that's brought me to where i am today and it's almost hard to pinpoint like when did it shift when did i start you know, being more comfortable speaking up or, you know, like what you talked about when models may not feel like they it's in their place to speak up about things. Is there any moment in time, like, when you can recall thinking that was the first time I actually, as a model, felt like I did have a voice, that actually I had the power to, to make a difference in the industry or in the world? Or like, was there so sort of like a tipping point where like, okay, wow, I, I see
0: myself having a different platform now? The first moment I can think of where... I started to realize that I could rearrange the things that I had access to was in 2009, leading up to the um, COP in Copenhagen, the climate talks in Copenhagen. I had this idea inspired by 350.org that was asking people to have an international day of action to draw attention to these climate talks. And I thought, oh, what if models don't have to advertise like products? What if they can advertise activism? And so just in a really kind of simple shift, like using the same tools um, that I already was experienced with in fashion, I got together with the help of actually my really wonderful agent, Christiana, um, a bunch of models to come and strip off layers of clothing to represent carbon parts per million in the atmosphere down to their underwear. So it's kind of, it was, it was silly. Um, It went viral, you know, for 2009, I think it had a million views and was on Fox news. So that felt like, uh, you know, moving, uh, changing the conversation and, and moving um, different eyeballs to that topic. But it also was a huge learning experience because prior to that, as a model, I always had felt like I was going along for the ride. Um, You know, like if someone cast me, well, It's not my idea. I'm part of someone else's fantasy. I don't have control over the creative team. All I can do is really hope that someone picks me and then execute with them their vision. And so in this moment where I was in charge, it really um, made the experience so much more critical for me because I really had to come to terms with the mistakes that I had made um, and also my reliance on tools that may not be actually drawing that future closer. So for example, um, in that short piece, I reached out to tons of models to come show up and I think 10 or 12 showed up and they all ended up being white women. And so in the exact moment when that happened, I thought, oh, that's too bad that, you know, all these folks didn't say yes. But in reflection, it was really this lesson about organizing and about what it means to create inclusive spaces and how that really is the responsibility of the organizer. Um, and then obviously sort of the theme of, of that piece, which was like women undressing, we had a voiceover. So image wise, we looked sort of voiceless. Um, you know, I was just using the tools that I was used to seeing happen in advertising, but I wasn't really creatively remixing and thinking about how do we create visually? Um, how do we create a future that we want to pull closer, which, you know, is one where women are valued for, more than being smiley in their underpants.
1: That point right there is something that I love. It's been something I've been working on with myself is like, you don't have to do it perfectly to do it. And that this is true Mm. for so many topics, including, you know, I'm, I'm writing a blog right now about being white and talking about race. And it's very important that we have conversations. You don't have to do it perfectly. You can put your foot in your mouth. You can, you know, make mistakes here and there, but you have to do that, that work. You have to do it. So you know, creating something that, in hindsight, you're like, oh, well, I don't know if that was a good idea or whatever. Like, it had an impact. You, you know, you did raise a lot of awareness. There's so much that's good about it, and that for people to take away, like, it's good to try. It's good to try and have it not go perfectly.
0: Yeah, and I think as white women, we are have been existing in a culture that values uh, us as sort of pure and. We have to undermine white supremacy in so many ways, but part of that is just by acknowledging there's no purity here. Like we are starting from a place of imperfection and rather than canceling ourselves, there is something even better which is holding ourselves accountable. And so it's finding that way forward which is to say, of course, I've made these mistakes. And of course, I am imperfect. And I'm working inside a system, which is imperfect. And how do I continue to find ways to do it better and be accountable to myself, but also in accountable relationships? Since you kind of brought up that topic, I actually want to, um, first of all,
2: thank both of you because 2020 was one of those years where like people who had not even known about white supremacy before were suddenly like just kind of faced with that. And um, I'm reading a book right now that Robin prompted me to read, which is called Me and My White Supremacy. And it's just been interesting because I'm doing all the journaling prompts and everything. And what I just actually read last night was about white exceptionalism. That's almost like the worst part of it, because it's the people like myself who are like, well, I have black friends. I am someone who believes everyone's equal. And I don't, you know, I don't adhere to this. I don't support this but in thinking that way you're almost doing more damage than good. There's one quote I want to just bring up real quick because I think it was so brilliant. It's from uh, Martin Luther King and he says, "Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection." And I just kind of wanted to like bring this up because Rob and I have talked about this a lot, too. It's like being white, being two white women, uh, having these conversations, you feel like you don't really know too much. And at some point I was like, I'm not someone to speak up because now is the time for me to just be quiet and listen. And then you realize, well, I also need to engage in these conversations. Being white yourself, uh, having a partner who's, who's Black, what have you learned? Like, what would you say to someone who may be in my position or just being white person who may not know how to start addressing this? Like, what would you say is a good way to start?
0: No, I think that's different for everybody. I think reading is a great entry point, but I'm someone who reads a lot. So that feels very comfortable for me. Um, I think what you brought up that I've been thinking a lot about recently, that is about onboarding people and, and evolving people is what you said, exceptionalism is not serving us. And actually I think the work of white people right now is not to say um, I'm nothing like those white people over there. I I cancel them, I can't see them, I don't talk to those relatives. Our work is to say, this is really terrifying and 70 million people may have been radicalized in the last four years um, where white supremacists were enabled and holding the highest office in this country and how do we de-radicalize people? How do we de-radicalize our family members? How do we do the work of talking to other white people and building um, accountable, trusting relationships, loving relationships with those folks? Absolutely. It reminds me of um, something
1: I've heard Brene Brown speak of is accountability versus shame. You know, building the bridge is about being accountable to ourselves and then also calling in our family members who, for any reason, have stuff going on that needs to be talked about in a real way versus shaming someone. One of the questions I had for you, Cameron, is sort of a, a big complicated question that has been like heavy on my heart for a while. I'm someone who also grew up, you know, in the fashion industry, 15 years modeling, and I have sort of struggled to f- understand my own sense of identity. And so I wanted to talk to you about identity as well, because I think that, you know, for me, going from model to mom, I'm now in this space where I'm kind of realizing like, who am I without the things that I do? But for so many people, the sense of identity that they get is from the images that they see in the media and social media. It sort of reinforces what you might think is possible for yourself. So my question for you is sort of about how do you see that the images that we have in media and social media um, how do they influence young people's sense of self and you know, their sense of agency, that perception of freedom to make choices in, in their lives and autonomy, the actual ability to enact those choices in the world? You know, what's your thought on how the media influences our sense of self and what is possible for us?
0: My gut reaction to this question is to think about moments where I feel like media has increased or expanded my sense of self or my understanding of what company and how much company I might be in. I think of a couple years ago when I binge read every model autobiography ever The canon is like, you know, maybe 20 books or something, if if you care to dive in. Um, (laughs) And I was just so shocked, I guess, or, yeah, shocked at what women who had come before me were saying about this experience that I hadn't heard before. So women, you know, like I think of um, Iman's autobiography, where she talks about feeling Um, complicity with the industry that had celebrated her. And she felt, she said, you know, she felt complicit in going along with a very racist narrative about how she was discovered. Um, And I think her whole understanding of being um, both privileged and oppressed and complicit with both of those just was a complex and very familiar feeling to me that I hadn't seen voiced by other models, I think in part because I just hadn't been listening or I hadn't sought out that media. So my, my kind of gut reaction to that question is that I think media does provide us so much company and learning and opportunity for evolution and intimacy but it does require so much searching, you know, especially today when there's just like a barrage of of, a a cacophony of of stuff going on. It's so hard um, to focus sometimes. And I think, you know, like doom scrolling and all that kind of stuff is like, you know, when I had the first, uh, I'm sure like, this is an experience had by many, but you know, when the iPhone started reporting screen time (laughs) and like the first screen time report I got, I was like, oh no, this is a significant portion of my life. And so after that I had to start intentionally leaving my phone in another room because it is kind of addictive. You know, you take a break from doing whatever work you're doing and you like check your message and then you just go over to social media or you go to the bathroom. Like I know everybody is liking Instagram photos when they pee. I know that's what y'all are doing. It's gross, I do it too. That's, but if you think about that it makes you spend less time on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, so, you know, I think there is a whole mess of stuff. There's some question that you wrote down about uh, a favorite quote and a quote I've been thinking a lot about recently, which I'll now butcher because I don't have it memorized, is a Paulo Freire quote where he talks about optimism um, and the role of the the teacher in bringing optimism is to tell um, moments from history that are that are accurate and and real reasons to be optimistic. And I feel very much like finding those stories and finding people and finding, um, yeah, histories that, that really show us that there is opportunity beyond this moment or beyond what we can see in this moment is where I find a lot of optimism and hope.
2: Well, since you're bringing up optimism, you brought in another question. Uh, We have talked about optimism a lot. And um, when some background story, when I started kind of brainstorming something around optimism to be a social media campaign, I talked to both of you. um, And I love you, Cameron, because you're like, "Mm, we should think a little extra on this one. Uh, And you just always think about like the next step, like how can this be received? Um, And so I went from Optimist October, which was kind of like a little bit too narrow. And then Robin brought in, like, you're all about action. Like, how about being an optimist in action? And what does that mean? And so I just, I listened to both of you and I'm really grateful that I have friends in my life like you like, you know, kind of challenge me to take it to the next level. But on the note of optimism, how do you think of that word? What does it mean to you? Do
0: you see yourself as an optimist? And if so, why or why not? Well, first, I think that optimist in action was such a beautiful evolution of that idea. And I love that understanding of optimism that both of you have now brought to the fore because my gut reaction to the word optimism, um, which is just, you know, when kids are like, what does that mean? And then you say, well, if there's a glass, glass that's half full, you know, you can see it as half full or half empty. And it just makes it seem like optimism and pessimism is sort of a mood you pick. And is actually not about what's happening in the world at all, because either way, the glass has water up to the midpoint. So <laughs> it's just like that example and that understanding that's just, I, I think where I learned that word feels so ridiculous when we're talking about just immense, an immense challenge that I don't even think can be understood by a single individual. It's impossible to grasp all of what is happening and changing And I think included in in trying to grasp it is so much grief and there is an undeniable amount of suffering. And so I think a very early question for many people coming to the climate conversation is, oh, well, should we have hope? Are you an optimist? Because it seems sort of like an easy answer to what is a huge challenge um, and that, well, if you feel optimistic or hopeful, then I guess we'll be fine. But I think optimist in action and where you both landed is a much better way to understand that because it reminds me of, of uh, Christiana Figueres' book where she talks about, you know, needing to see that future where we're thriving to pull it closer. And if we can't see that future, it's very hard to pull it closer to know what path we walk And so for me, that's the role of optimism is finding ways that we can get to places where we are living better than we are, finding examples of people making meaning and um, finding fulfillment through care work and through suffering. I think finding optimism is, is a complex and daily like struggle and challenge um, that we really choose to commit to and I find you know I also like find I'll find something and then for like two months I will like have this thing that I'm holding so close and it feels like a light or it feels like warmth like recently I was reading about Vera Rubin who's an uh, a physicist who discovered dark matter in the 1970s when she discovered it the Nobel committee didn't give her Uh, the award because it's it's argued later that she didn't have a particle experiment to prove it. But now fast forward to today, and we know that dark matter and dark energy probably makes up 95% of the universe. And so when I heard that story, it reminded me so much of starting to see the often very invisible labor that supports our sustaining, supports life. And that the more you see it, the more you realize how abundant that is. And so the idea of scarcity or of not having what we need to make it through, I think also doesn't see the invisible labor that is supporting us. And so I just found that metaphor and I really was holding onto that. Now, scientifically, I don't know if that's like a great comparison, but (laughs) (laughs) poetically I've been like, yes. (laughs) So what is that? OK, because
2: I think part of what optimist in action landed in being is, you know, this whole concept of showing up every single day or as often as you have the energy to to be the change you wish to see and to really start making those small and in- incremental changes. And although that's not going to save the world per se, it's just what fuels your optimism. And then the more you can ha- like continue to feel your optimism, that will really determine how you show up in the world on that note, because I know that you're someone who's like really trying to to take everything you learn and every all the kind of information you're gathering and put it into action. What is a different way that you show up in climate activism uh, in your everyday life? Like what are some things that you're doing to
0: trying to be that change? I think this is a great question. I think there is such a simple answer in a way to why do small changes in your own life. And I didn't think of it. I actually have to attribute this to Rebecca Burgess who founded Fibershed. When I was talking to her and I asked her about this because in her book, she writes about like, you know, this is gonna take a movement. This is gonna take systemic change. Um, And I said, you know, if you believe that, why are you so committed to, um, you know, the project that started Fibershed, which was wearing um, clothing that was only sourced from her 25 mile radius. And she said that doing that work personally helped strengthen a muscle that was required for the much larger work. And it helped her work through failure and also feel and enjoy success because it was so intimate. You know, movement work, it's hard to really, you know, when there's a failure, it feels so big and beyond your control. Um, And when there's success, it also is so far away and frequently doesn't fulfill everything that we're hoping that it does. Um, And so I really resonated with that understanding of of doing the work and exercising the muscle. Um, And so what that looks like for me, uh, last year, I tried to make monthly climate commitments and make them public, um, which didn't actually change what I was doing so much although it did make me think a little more intentionally a little more frequently about those things so just making you know everything from like financial commitments to um you know volunteering commitments on campaigns to um like composting and gardening with my kids and I don't know that although I do like to do those things and I think particularly um because I have children I think it's A really wonderful way for them to start thinking about those systems. I also give myself a break on the sort of daily commitment because I really try to bring that consciousness into all my work and that's where right now I think I can spend my emotional and intellectual energy if that makes sense. You both are nodding quietly, like I've (laughs) let you down and I'm, I'm, I'm open. I'm ready to hear that critique.
2: (laughs) No, definitely not. I think it's so needed to hear too, that like no one's perfect. And I think a lot of people view you, view you as this activist who's just on the front line and doing amazing stuff. And I hear this a lot too. It's like people just assume I'm perfect. And I also buy stuff in plastic because there is no other option. Like we all live in society today. And I think it's really important to give ourselves that break and understand that this is to take systemic change um and of course showing up with your own individual actions is really important but at the same time like that's not where it ends and we need to also sustain ourselves and we can't do that if we keep beating ourselves up so no it was a great answer
1: yeah i mean it reminds me of like what i've learned from both of you about how you don't have to be doing it perfectly like you said and and um that the changes that we are able to make can inspire more changes. And it's like, just do it one piece at a time. Just do what you can, where you can. You don't have to take it on all at once. So, yeah, I so appreciate learning. I've learned so much from both of you. I mean, I'm, I have, I will say that part of my identity that has changed that I'm very happy about is from meeting both of you. I'm going to (laughs) cry. Yeah, the, the shift that happened in my life from, from not knowing who I was as a model and then becoming a model activist it was very much from both of you. So I'm very, very grateful to have you in my life.
0: And both of your work is also just to to like ride on Robin's um, glowing. And and um, I receive that love, and also I send it back because I think you know <laughs> there is nothing that we can do by ourselves, right? It's all in community. And this idea of um, agency and and that like. I can definitely fix this problem. That is 100% not true. We we might be able to fix it. So, um, working with both of you and seeing both of you just on these incredible journeys of evolution and building community and building power in community is so inspiring because I I really think that's the work and to see it flourish in our community where um, even 10 years ago I didn't think that was possible and it's just blooming here. And so that's so wonderful to be a part of and to see.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, before we wrap up, are you ready for some rapid fire questions? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You can do this. (laughs) Um, So fill in the blank. I believe in a positive future because.
0: Well, I said this earlier, but can I say it again? I don't know. Of course. Okay. (laughs) Okay. I believe in a positive future because I think we have to continue to see it to pull it closer. Love that. Number two, morning bird or night owl? Oh, you know this, Robin. Once you have children,
1: there's no choice. <laughs> <laughs> I woke up at 6.45 today by
0: choice. <laughs>
1: and Teresa's <is> changing me.
0: <laughs> Wait, you're a night owl with, with a four-year-old? I'm such a night owl.
1: Oh, are you a morning person?
0: I didn't, I didn't think there was an option. I'm, it's like 2am, the kids in the bed. I'm like, <laughs> okay, so then I guess at five, I'll just get up. <laughs> but clearly you have an angelic sleeping child. So that's beautiful. <laughs> he, he does sleep well. I am traditionally a uh, night owl, but Anne-Therese
1: has convinced me to be a morning person. So um, oh. it's, it's it's good for the whole family. <laughs>
0: Okay, number 3. The best part of my day is oh, changes every day. How do I answer that? I don't know. I you know, I feel like it's just it's like I like it to be a roller coaster. I like to be unexpected. My friends are always like, well, "So what's your routine?" and I'm like, first of all, I did this job for 18 years where there's no such thing as routine. But also, I love the chaos of not having a routine, which I realize is against like every productivity expert ever. So this is not good advice. But I just like to see what happens." <laughs> Awesome, nice,
2: the
1: chaos and non-routine, perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A favorite quote, you did mention some earlier, but if you have a favorite one.
0: This is one that's been on my mind recently um, and it's from the Pedagogy of Hope by Paulo Freire. And he says, one of the tasks of the progressive educator through a serious correct political analysis is to unveil opportunities for hope. And I feel like that even just uh, as a parent or as uh, educating myself or as an organizer, that it's so transformative to find things in history that let us see the world differently or open the world up or open up possibilities. So that's been on my mind lately.
1: A book that you read that really stuck with you.
0: Oh, so many. What is my gut response on this? Uh, I started writing a couple years ago, and it was inspired by an essay from Michelle Cliff called Notes on Speechlessness. So that pops into my mind as a very transformative piece of writing. Sounds like a book I want to read right now.
2: Notes of Speechlessness.
0: It's a, it's an essay that you can just find as a PDF on the on oh. internet.
2: Yay! Amazing. Good because I have a very deep pile of books right now. So essays are great.
0: And also, it's written in bullet points with numbers, and that is just beautiful. I'm I love a bullet point number. (laughs) Maybe
2: maybe that's like your piece of structure in your chaotic life. It's like bullet points. Great. (laughs) That's right. If you could instill one change in the world right now, what would that be?
0: This is like butterfly effect. Like if I say the wrong thing, knows. (laughs) Um, okay, two things pop into my head. The first one is I feel like just all types of supremacy kind of got us into this spot. So white supremacy, patriarchy, ableism, ageism all these things, you know, if we could like get rid of that, we probably would be living in a much healthier, happier world. But then I also think sometimes I think the climate crisis can take on sort of biblical uh, moral sort of narrative where we brought this on ourselves, um, and we have sinned and that it can kind of feel like that. And I think while we, yes, as, as, a you know, I think Western extractive capitalism did bring this on us. I don't think it was one individual or sort of the responsibility of one person that led us here. And, um, sometimes seeing it that way, I think can um, be super harmful. So also we could just give ourselves like a break and just say that we figure out some carbon extraction technology um, and we have a little respite and breathing room to solve all the million other crises that are now being exacerbated. I don't know which one. I don't know. <laughs> Let's take. I don't, have the, I don't know the golden key. <laughs> <laughs> Something you're letting go of. Well, on the heels of that, I would say um, agency and responsibility. And I think through maybe particularly moments in fashion where I really struggled with um, not feeling that I had agency, um, my response to that was then to try to have like full agency and take responsibility for everything. Um, And that's not a super healthy response. So I think just uh, an acceptance of interdependence and, Um, that we're always just a co-author
2: oh i love that such a good reminder so what is something you're inviting more of
0: more uh more trusting relationships always more intimate trusting relationships
2: fill in the blank i want the world to remember me for
0: Ooh, I don't know. I hope that my kids love me when they grow up and that we have a really close relationship and then they remember that funny when I'm no longer here. <laughs>
2: That's so beautiful. And like ultimately everything that matters. Um, okay, last question, big one for you. What does being an optimist in action mean to you?
0: Yeah, just to keep going, I think. Just to keep going and keep seeing that future, keep pulling that future closer, um and keep finding ways that we can live right now that um get us there and yeah and also i think i think maybe to let go of some of the personal urgency like there is a tirelessness that i think is required but you know everyone's always like this is a marathon which is definitely true so I think to allow ourselves to see what is important and what is urgent and um, really try to remember both of those so that we can work on long-term things and not just um, get caught up in sort of short-term success failure. Thank you for
2: joining us for another episode of the Hey Change podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please share this episode with friends, family, or someone in your network. Also, don't forget to give it five stars in the app so that we can reach more listeners just like you. We love hearing from our
1: listeners, so please tag us when you share this episode on social media. We'd love to connect with you and learn about what you are doing too. You can find where to reach us in the show notes. Before you go, we'd
2: like to invite you to pause and to think about this one final question. What does being an optimist in action mean to you?